Just a quick announcement before we get started. Hey, guess what? I have a new show that I'm hosting here on the Maximum Fun Network. It's called Sleeping with Celebrities. I interview delightful, famous guests in my most soothing voice about mundane topics. And then you listen at bedtime to put yourself to sleep. The conversation is funny and interesting enough to get your mind off your swirling thoughts, but not so interesting that it keeps you awake. Our first episode is up now, and it's with comedian and actor Andy Daly talking about lawn care and whether you can kill someone with a weed whacker. And you can't. And you mustn't try. Now, moving on. I've changed my mind. Not about the show. I know what show this is. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. No, I've changed my mind about where I think depression usually comes from. Years ago, I used to think that it was pretty much a coin flip. 50% of cases come from some kind of traumatic experience that gets swallowed up and then festers, and 50% of the cases from just luck of the draw, biology, or genetics. You just drew a short straw. 50-50. Well, I've been hosting shows about mental health and writing books about mental health now since 2016, which is a while. And in that time, I've talked to a whole lot of people and learned their life stories. It's not scientific data, but I've gathered a lot of anecdotal information, and I don't believe it's a 50-50 proposition anymore. I don't think it's a matter of half the time being a traumatic experience, half the time being luck of the draw. I think the roots of mental health problems are tilted way more towards personal experiences. I've just heard so many stories where something or many somethings have happened, like the conversation I had with this week's guest. Zach Zimmerman is a comedian who has performed on The Late Late Show with James Corden and lots of other places. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker and McSweeney's and The Washington Post. Zach has dealt with depression and anxiety, and he has been through some stuff. As we'll hear in this interview, Zach grew up in a conservative Christian family, which made him convinced throughout his childhood that he was for sure going to hell. He doesn't think that anymore, but when your formative years are spent in certainty that you were condemned to eternal torture, let's not dismiss how much that can mess you up. Zach also experienced the loss of a close friend under horrifying circumstances, which we'll hear about as well. Zach Zimmerman is the author of a new book now available for pre-order titled, Is It Hot in Here or Am I Suffering for All Eternity for the Sins I Committed on Earth? Zach Zimmerman, welcome to Depression Mode. Thank you for having me, John. I'm so relieved that if we ever alphabetize the guests that we've had, I know exactly where on the list you will appear. <laughs> I, I bring up the rear and have since since elementary school. <laughs> since I, I imagine, I imagine like calling attendance was just a lot of sitting around for you. It gave me time to finish the homework that I hadn't fully finished. Ah, well played, well played. <laughs> where did you grow up? I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia. It's this uh, surrounded by mountains in southwest Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley. 
not the a lot of people think it's the Roanoke when they hear Roanoke they think the colony where everyone vanished or assimilated with the indigenous <laughs> people but no just 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 another city named Roanoke okay only kid siblings What's, what was the arrangement there were there were four of us i was number t- number 2 of 4 which i guess makes me half middle child but i i found my beat and it was academics and i excelled at it while my sisters and younger brother did other things Okay. And I, and I feel like given given what's covered in the book and given what's covered in your your stand-up work and a lot of your other writing, I feel like we need to be introduced to at least your mother, probably both your parents, but at least your mother. Tell me about your mom. Oh my heavens. Patty is a firecracker. She's a, a bottle blonde. Uh, I've been dyeing her hair blonde since I can remember. She's a, a, a server and has been a server at the Red Lobster for, it'll be 40 years now. 40 years? Yeah. That's not a level of brand love you see these days. No. She gets very upset on her like 25th or 30th anniversary. They didn't do anything for her. And so she like complained and they gave her some little pin. <laughs> they, they don't reward her, her loyalty that much. She's short and she loves the Lord and exercising and staying fit and she moved to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. She grew up in a trailer in Virginia and then worked hard, got involved in some multi-level marketing schemes, as a mother does, and lived her dream and moved to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where she's been living at large for a decade now. And your dad? Frank is... I'm my father's child and my mother's child. For my dad, I get... uh my anxiousness, my love of language. He um, worked on cars for a lot of his life and was an assistant pastor at uh, First Baptist Church for a beat. And he is surprisingly goofy. I'm I'm learning the further I get from sort of my childhood. He's a, a goofy, jolly man who sometimes will say things you don't know if they're a joke or sort of incredibly devastating but he and her have an air fryer that they swear by that's the headline and i just got a text from him i bought bought him he celebrated his 65th birthday last week and so i was sent a text that i needed to send money for the shoes that he had bought himself and everyone was expected to contribute i don't know if other families do this you just get hey this is what i bought for myself you owe me money just got like a venmo request or something basically Okay. And I've tried to, I've rebelled a little because I heard he like, he was watching Bob Ross recently and expressed an interest in painting. And so I, I sent him a little Bob Ross kit and he just sent me a picture of it. So who knows what monster I've created in their Myrtle Beach home. There could be a, a new painter on the scene. And your mom and dad are, are politically and socially conservative, correct? Very much so. Mommy t- tiptoeing into QAnon vibes at times. I think that's softened a little bit. But during the pandemic, my mom got a little too deep into parts of the Internet. But they've, they're squarely conservative, vote Republican every year. I've watched it evolve a bit with Trump and the Internet um, and social media. So, so as an interviewer, then, I, I'm mentally trying to uh, get out a map and figure out how we get from from that childhood with those parents to uh, 
a gay Ivy League educated comedian in New York City. <laughs> because it, who is still in regular contact with your parents and and you seem to have a really g- great relationship with them. It's wonderful, but it's uh it, it's not how these things often go. It's it's all a ruse. I'm actually okay. a Republican <laughs> myself. I <laughs> It's a long con. It's a long con. I mean some key defining moments happen sort of in college, not to turn this into a an ad for a liberal arts education, but once you kind of get separated from the place that you're growing up and get put into a new environment and encounter other ways of thinking and become critical of the way you grew up. And like, I mean, not to go too dark too early, but sort of dealing with death at a very young age made me sort of question all of the religious beliefs that I've been taught. Um, Okay. Well, we're definitely going to go there, but before we do, I I know, I know that you've dealt with depression. I know you've dealt with anxiety um, and how far back do those go in your life? I guess the whole ride diagnosed sort of not until I moved in with a partner in Chicago did I start therapy. And then when he dumped me, I was sort of like raised my hand for like, hey, something's happening here and got on Lexapro and then switched to Wellbutrin. And now I'm back on Lexapro again. So I think sort of consciously aware that might be a problem around when I was 26 or so. My parents never thought to send send me to therapy. I got sent to sort of church. So maybe maybe I could have been diagnosed more early. And the older I get, as I talk to my sisters and my dad, and we start to understand how our minds work, I realize there might be some genetic things happening that are sort of inherited and I have to remind myself it's not my job to diagnose my parents or my grandparents or go all the way back into what these silly little genes are that I have. It's a hard thing to do, certainly, and it's a it's a hard thing to avoid wanting to do. It's very tempting. Well, you, you say that this goes back the full ride. When did you first start noticing, I guess as a kid, that there was that there was something going on mentally with you? It's hard to separate I mean, I guess I, I thought I was going to hell for my whole childhood and sort of living with that shame and fear. I now understand it was sort of laying some some groundwork, some hardwiring of like living in a constant state of fear and fight or flight response can start to drain your mood. I think I had a a otherwise happy childhood. Um, (laughs) Aside from being (laughs) condemned to hell. It was great. Um, But I think that's why I gravitated towards doing well in my schoolwork and getting my sweet little straight A's. And so I, I, I loved my teachers and sought validation there where I could. But I never I didn't think I didn't think something was off with my mind or even the idea of mental health didn't come to it. It was sort of all uh, religion and like, oh, I'm going to hell. This life doesn't actually that matter that much. All that matters is yes or no for Jesus. Why did you think you were going to hell? My father and community didn't tell me explicitly, but I, I grew up around the dinner table with dad sort of giving little sermons, uh, explaining that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sort of everyone's default is going to hell after the age of accountability. This idea for evangelicals or people that know, like, if you're a kid and you die early enough, you you can still go to heaven. You don't go to hell. But like once you're maybe 11 or something and have the ability well, to choose. I never knew there was a cutoff. 
There has to be a cutoff, right? Well, sure. Or, I guess. I'm glad, I, don't know. I guess. But 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 I. Yeah, God wasn't saving me. My dad had this intense religious experience where he was at a church service as a kid and heard the voice of God telling him that he needed God. And so I tried to recreate that as a kid. I was like, oh, okay. So God tells you, hey, you're saved. And then you have like certainty that you're going Mm -hmm. to heaven. And I wanted that certainty. And so I prayed that little prayer as often as I could, never heard anything. Um, And so then concluded like, oh, I guess I'm straight up going to hell. Uh, And that's not healthy for a kid. That's, that's not a healthy idea for a little kid to be stewing on. Yeah. That that you're, that the default is that you're damned. Yeah. It's my beef with, I guess the whole tradition of Christianity, the default is damn and you need to be fixed rather than an, an Anne Frank idea where humans are inherently good and we need to combat the evil within us. But yeah. So I, I blame dad, but what's hard What's very hard is I know from his mindset, he's trying to help me. And that was causing me a lot of pain. Like if this is the game and all that matters is your decision for Jesus Christ, whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell, if that is the case, he did what he needed to do by like teaching me about it. Was he trying to motivate you to, to get saved, to get, to get born again? I'm, I'm not all that familiar with how this level of, uh, of religion works, but is that the oh, idea? Oh, welcome, welcome to hell. <laughs> welcome um, to the tent meeting. We're gonna yeah. get started. <laughs> yeah, let me get my my Billy Graham on. Yeah. Well, well, well. All, yes, all have fought, sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Unless you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, invite Him into your heart. Only then can you enter the kingdom of heaven after you die. Otherwise, John Mo, you are gonna suffer for all eternity in the flames of hell with the burning and gnashing of teeth. Mm. Unless you make this particular choice, you can make it any time in your life up till the moment you die. Maybe I've already made it. Maybe the rule, maybe I am saved, <laughs> but, but otherwise, yeah, you're, you have to be born again. So, so then why did you think you were going to hell? Why didn't you just say, well, I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll welcome him into my heart and, and then my, my future is secured. I'll apply early decision to him. <laughs> Well, I didn't get the my acceptance letter. Okay. okay. I didn't get a physical, I didn't get this voice of God, which now when I've mentioned that to my dad, he's like, oh, you don't have to hear a voice. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, why, why are you bragging about hearing a voice my whole childhood? And here I'm like laying in bed, like terrified, like, dear Heavenly Father, please accept me. Uh, <laughs> so do you, do you think it was this foundational thing about, about church and, and damnation that that triggered a, a, a depression, a depressive disorder, an anxiety disorder that otherwise wouldn't have been there? Potentially, yeah, it's hard to call nature versus nurture here because from talking to my sister, well, we got and- deep fast in this one, didn't we? <laughs> you you dodged death and we went straight for <laughs> no i postponed death we're gonna get to death that's what i mean yeah i was a, a little kid thinking about big issues and i still i still am but i i yeah i don't know i've talked to my 
someone once said if I hadn't been raised this way, I could have been like happy as an accountant or something like I could like, but just like a happy accountant rather than craving artistic validation and mining life for meaning, et cetera, et cetera. Exposing all your deepest secrets to uh, drunks and comedy clubs so they can clap for you and you can fill in things you couldn't fill in on your own. It's true. It's, it's, <laughs> but then, and then when you start to fill that well of self-love on your own, then you don't need the audience's approval, but you still have the skills. So you keep doing the job and then you start to get weird and not need their laughs and start enjoying when they don't laugh in right. a weird <laughs> twist, twisted way. Right. But I guess you asked like triggers. I, th I think that was probably a, a bedrock. And then it wasn't until, yeah, moving in with a lover and sort of a breakup there. And so I'm like, once life started to mess up a little, I realized like, oh, something, my brain's different than other people's or very similar to lots of people. And therapy, I think more than medication changed my life. I've been with the same guy in Chicago and then we rekindled things in the pandemic when everything was digital. But yeah, this lovely man in Chicago helped me understand my little brain and learn how to, on a good day, wield it and control it. On a bad day, sort of shorten the lengths of the bad days. He calls it the old place. I don't know if that's his coined thing, but kind of like the old way of thinking or the way we, this place of, it's different for everybody, but sort of the shame, for me, it's shameful and sort of scared little kid, that old place. And I go big, which I think is my Shakespearean flaw. Like it's great to be able to create worlds and fill a page with ideas and sort of tell all these stories when you're sort of writing a joke or an idea for a show. That is less of a great impulse when you're sort of analyzing like, oh, is this headache a brain tumor? Is this that bad social interaction? Am I cursed forever? Did I botch that? Um, sort of this ability to go big is great for my creativity, but sometimes bad for my mental health if I can't control it or, or cut it off or not spend too long in that old place. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the caring for the, for the old place is, is a, a common theme in a lot of therapy because it's, it's where you want to slide back into it. It's like how you, how you're always most comfortable sleeping in a fetal position because it's just what your body wants to go back to that your, your mind has the same idea. I'm t I, I took a bath last night, which uh -huh. is rare for me. I'm visiting a friend in L.A. And, and she has a bathtub and she's like, you have to have a soak. And so I haven't taken a bath. And I mean, I shower, but I haven't taken a bath in, I don't know, a decade. And there I uh -huh. am just like in the it, trying to get in the fetal position. I'm six foot four. It was kind of hard <laughs> listening to your podcast to prepare oh, good. for today. I was just in the, <laughs> naked in a tub uh, being lured by John Moe's voice into this mm. like beautiful embryonic state. Nice. Nice. I had a friend who went to embryonic state. It was great school. <laughs> um, I have to ask then before we leave childhood about the, the death that you mentioned. Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm, it's, I feel very lucky in that death hasn't touched me since it's kind of why I feel not lucky maybe, but it's, it's strange how long I've had a run where I'm not grieving, but yeah, my freshman year of college, 
a friend from high school was in the Virginia Tech massacre. On April 16th, 2007, a student at Virginia Tech killed 32 people and injured 17 more in a series of shootings. It was the largest mass shooting in American history at the time. It's now the third largest. We'll hear about Zach's connection to those events after the break. If you have trouble falling asleep, try sleeping with celebrities. Tell me about your view of, of succulents. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan. It's a different kind of sleep podcast. There are some real benefits to parking illegally. Featuring remarkable guests and unremarkable topics. There's two Orlando airports. From the creator of Depression Mode with John Moe, it's Sleeping with Celebrities. Every week on Maximum Fun. Nighty-night sleepyheads. You know, you need to read things. It's good for your eyes. It's good for your brain. It's good for your soul. Why not read something delightful? Psychology Onions is a hilarious newsletter about obsessive-compulsive disorder, mental illness, and, if time permits, onions. It's sort of like if The Onion and Psychology Today had a baby. Visit psychologyonions.substack.com and join Peter, the host, a self-described spindly little dude with OCD, as he punches back at his disorder in a herky-jerky, Popeye-esque way that will most likely throw his back out. That's psychologyonions, as in the vegetables, dot, D-O-T, substack, dot, again, and then come without the E. Check it out. Read things. Read this. Read Psychology Onions. Psychologyonions.substack.com By the way, this was what's called a Jumbotron message. The Maximum Fun Jumbotron program allows anyone to share their message on a Maximum Fun podcast read by the hosts. You can promote a thing you're working on or just wish someone a happy birthday or almost anything you want. And it's super cheap. Go to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron for more information. Back with comedian Zach Zimmerman and his connection to the 2007 Virginia Tech shooting. It feels like gun violence is a daily thing now. This was back when it was still sort of national news. But yeah, it's it uh, it sucked. It sucked. It's it's this was a close not- friend of yours. Yeah, we were in high school together and middle school when I switched to public school uh, in fifth grade. And we were always, uh, we were, the nerds got separated. I went to public school and they put all the like gifted or smart kids into a class together. And so we, it was this little subset of the school. So like 20 or 30 kids who knew each other very, very well. And he and I were the best performers in the class. I was valedictorian. He was salutatorian. We, yeah, always gave each other a hard time, very competitive. And then you go away to college and you, you, you don't stay in touch as strongly. And then you get sort of an alert when you're in a religion class at Princeton that there's a shooting at the school that a bunch of your friends went to. And so you fire off all these texts. And then my mom called to, to tell me he had been shot. Um, 
And that's, yeah, it's not, uh, shouldn't have happened. And I, uh, went back home and to Roanoke and everyone sort of, I mean, no one knows how to mourn a person or get together, but the high school became a setting. I went back to the teachers that we had sort of let us hold up space and cry a lot. I don't know if I'm sure anyone who's experienced grief knows that it like comes in these weird waves. You can't like sob for three hours. So you like sob for 10 or so minutes and then the body gives way and then sort of the grievers become the comforters and the comfort, like you take turns helping each other. And it was my first time meeting some of his family members. He kept his family pretty private, but yeah, seeing, uh, it was, uh, when I saw my friend in a casket is when I was like, Oh, this, this is why religion exists. Like to make this hurt less. Like, of course that's what this whole, like my parents had been teaching me about this tradition and I, and then I was like, oh, somebody came up with this because this sucks or like I need to make sense of this awful thing. Maybe religion will help. But for me, that was the moment where I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. A tradition that's damning my friend to hell, a tradition that can't make sense of why this happened. Um, what was your friend's name? Hen. Hen. Hen Lee. Was Hen's death. Um, like, was that a big turning of the tides in your view of religion? Had you been religious up until that point? Had you gone along with this idea of, you know, the damnation that you have to get out of and the heaven and hell and the whole thing? Yeah, it had started to, I compared it to like, I was wearing my father's clothes my first year of college and I started to kind of not fit as well. Or I started to be like, is this? Oh, other people don't believe this. Am I really going to uphold this like that strongly? And I even was starting to take religion classes at Princeton. I was in a class in the Judaic studies program about King David and the Bible. And we were reading the Bible from a like scholarship standpoint. And so the professors like explaining the historical people and why this story may have motivated these certain things or sort of within the text, you start to see like conflicting ideas. And he explains like, oh, this is what led to this school of thought and that school of thought. And I start, I was like enjoying taking these academic tools and kind of poking them at this thing I was raised in. And I was having phone calls with my dad, like, oh, but this and that. And he's like, oh, be careful, be careful. They, they thought Princeton was going to liberalize me and heathenize me. And it did. Um, <laughs> but that there was... So I, I, it definitely accelerated things that may have happened organically, but it did feel like this sort of just jarring moment of like, okay, no, no more God for me. No more. It's weird. I even uh, watched a factory farming documentary within like a week or two after Hen died. And that's like when I became vegetarian and still have been. I feel like when big things happen, I don't know if it's true for everybody, when big things happen, like you make other big changes too. Well, when you were growing up, you you talked about how this this idea of this original sin and this, you know, waiting for a sign from God that was never come, that, that was a big 
factor with your depression, certainly, and your anxiety. When you started to let go of the religion and started to let go of that programming that you had had as a kid, did that help your mental health? Or did that leave you feeling unmoored? Closer to unmoored. I think the when you're left with sort of... I, I, I see now the value of a tradition. Like, I would love to have a place to go every Sunday and sing and see my friends. And I've started to fill it in with comedy in a nice way. But when you take away what what was damning you to hell, but was familiar, then you have to go out and start piecing together your own philosophy of living and reckon with parts of you. And you can't, I mean, you know this, what is learned first is learned best. Like that hardwiring is there. Like I'm still... Nothing seems weird if it's what you came from. Yeah. And so little, little, I'm, I'm still, part of me is like, maybe... Maybe there is one. Maybe he's right. And it doesn't help when you have a phone call with your parents and they're like, eternity. It's just this giant, like, fuck you. They still wield sometimes to be like, oh, yeah, you're going to hell forever. It's it's sort of I have to remind myself I'm reading a book now. It's like a history of heaven and hell um, that just talks about like where this idea for hell. There was a time when people didn't believe in hell and there's a time when people believed in hell and we can point to that exact moment or that period of time. And so that's <laughs> started to help. But well, so you had this triple play in college of you mentioned <laughs> that, that you had been a I, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, uh, you, you became a vegetarian atheist homosexual while in college. It's, yes. it's the tri- you you hit the triple crown. <laughs> triple crown. <laughs> <laughs> when, when did you realize that you were gay, or when did you come out about being gay? It's so funny. I I hear people tell stories where like I knew from the moment I was four, or like I knew at twelve. Like I didn't experience sort of queer desire until college. Maybe there weren't any hot people in Southern Virginia. <laughs> it's but, an indictment on Roanoke but, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Roanoke dudes, step up. Sorry, it, guys. It was, yeah. It was um it's since been demolished, but there was a volleyball court outside of my dorm room and these uh hot Ivy League boys would play their shirtless games of volleyball and I'd have that kind of quintessential queer question of like, do I want to look like that or do I want to be with that? And so I started, I had a couple hookups in college, but it wasn't until after really that I started to be like, oh, I think this is like a big part of my identity. A friend of mine, this is a pro tip for anyone today, sat me down. She was from LA, sat me down my sophomore year and wrote this letter to me telling me I was gay. And I like did not, did, did not enjoy that. Sort of two, other people can sometimes know your truth before you, but you can't transfer that. Like people need to learn that on their own. And so, yeah, post-college, I'm starting to make sense of that part of myself. And identity is sort of fluid and malleable. I still feel in many ways I'm on journeys with identity. With gender identity or with orientation? I, I, I probably both. Um, okay. I don't know if I'm ready to come out to you yet today, John Moe, but uh, <laughs> I feel... They feel interconnected in kind of a way. And then I do look back and I'm like, oh, maybe I got it wrong. Like maybe jumping to 
sort of gay man at 18 didn't didn't capture all the beautiful colors of my desire and self <laughs> of your own personal rainbow right um did you go to chicago after college i went straight to chicago i couldn't afford new york why chicago i had two friends and a couch okay i had a couch i what's funny is i never had an internship in college a, a big thing that colors my life would be class i'd say like my parent like no one my parents didn't go to college i'm was first in my family to get in they gave me a full ride because my parents were poor like that's the secret to affording college just have poor parents and impressive academics and so then i'm like okay what kind of job am i supposed to get i my mom waits tables i know i've waited tables before should i and so i spring at the first like interview i have sleep on my friend's couch and then start to scramble and try to find work. All I wanted to do was comedy. Princeton joined an improv group, uh, which used to be a cool thing to do. And so I moved to Chicago to do Second City, take improv classes and do whatever day job I needed to do. And so I found one at a gay community center of all places. And that sort of honestly helped a little with identity, sort of being around a community, encountering people, and then you get welcomed to uh, the Church of Improv Comedy that was Chicago 2010 to 2017, the big warm blanket of <laughs> all your hopes and dreams and thousands of best friends who are also paying $300 a quarter for improv classes to climb some ladder. Right. And when did you come out to your parents? We'll get that answer right after the break. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week for My Brother, My Brother, and Me. Talking to Zach Zimmerman, raised in a conservative Christian home, goes on to be a gay, vegetarian, atheist comedian who lives in New York. I asked when he came out to his parents, and when I asked that question, he made this sound. I came out as atheist to them first, and that was sort of at 19, 20, coming home over Thanksgiving. And then I... I swear I'd done it. I My mom's made some comment like, I love you no matter what. And I was like, oh, okay, she gets it. But then my senior year, I was giving a speech at graduation, not a valedictorian speech. I was like in the middle of the lower middle of my class, but like a funny speech. And in it, I say, I'm a gay vegetarian atheist. And she's like, so you're gay. And she asks to not make that the discussion of the weekend. So that was a an attempt at coming out to them. And I don't know if I ever had a formal like sit down 
there was kind of just this whisper network of of Zach's wheeling and dealings. Occasionally, I'd I remember getting a meal with my dad at Cracker Barrel, and I like let drop the name of my boyfriend just to sort of see like John, just to see how he might respond. And he probably bled at the mouth from biting his tongue so hard. <laughs> I think I think they. Uh, they they learned I gave them a four year timeout where I like did not go home at all. And I think that woke them up a little bit. We're like, oh, if we want to see our kid, we need to sort of I have nothing but empathy for them because they have this love for me, but they're programmed with these beliefs and uphold these beliefs that tell them one particular thing about my destiny and what is acceptable to me. The thing that you used to believe was your destiny as well. And still could be. And still could and be. Still could, you're leaving the door open. <laughs> leaving the door leaving, open. Leaving the gates of hell open, <laughs> just in case. Leave the gates of hell unlocked. Leave, leave the gate open there, doll baby. <laughs> A snack for Cerberus. How, how did you end up... You, you, you talk about finally getting to therapy, finding medication that worked for you in Chicago. What led to that? When I moved in with my ex, I went to therapy, which is not a great sign for the relationship, to be honest, needing to run. But that was, I think when you move in with someone, you unconsciously or consciously start processing all the rules of a household that you were maybe raised in. Like, oh, when a door is closed, someone's upset and we leave them alone or we yell our problems or yelling means someone's upset and we leave dad alone when he comes home. Like there's these very unspoken rules. And when you live with someone, you those, those clash. And so I quickly realized like, oh, I need to talk to somebody about living with this other person. And then I realized like, oh, I don't know how to articulate my emotions. <laughs> like I am a 26 year old grown person. And I don't know how to say like, when you get angry, I take that personally. Or, oh, you need some space. I'm going to go. Like, I, I'm shutting down because I don't know how to deal with anger very well because my dad used to get upset or I associate anger with me doing something wrong. And therapy started to help me to start to do that. And I don't know, then you go into your family stuff and starting to make sense of this baggage that you have and your, your own mind. I remember uh, at one point I told my therapist, like, oh, I, I don't think I love myself. And he really, like, felt that and gave me an assignment and told me, like, hey, call my best friend Halcyon and call your mom and tell them that and see what they say. And I did. And they say sort of, I'm really sorry to hear that. Like, I love you. So he, he was encouraging me to sort of borrow the love other people were having for me to start to love myself a little bit more. Did that work? It's sort of a, a, a resetting of the bone. Maybe it wasn't instant. Like, I think I'm, I'm still on like a self-love journey, but that was sort of a, a moment where it's like, Oh, saying this out loud is sad. Or I'm realizing like, Oh, I've been really mean to myself and still was the pandemic was kind of a moment where, I lived alone. And so I was just, it was just me. And I'm like, I could really feel how a negative thought was like hurting my body. Like you're 
you're stupid, you're ugly, you're dumb, you're worthless. Those, I really f- like felt them in me. I was like, oh, wait, I'm shaving days off my life by being really cruel to myself. And then meditation and yeah, I, I, try, I try to meditate too, like everybody. <laughs> Why do you think you were hating yourself so much? I mean, kind of two, two, I blame Christianity and uh, gay men. Christianity like teaches you to, that your body is sinful, that sort of you're, you're less than you're a fallen creature. You were born into sin. Yeah. And then, uh, sort of the, the body standards of the gay community and my own probably dysmorphia sort of. And career stuff, I guess. It's wild. I think if everybody was doing as well in their career as they wanted to, maybe there be, wouldn't be a depression epidemic. It's hard to... Maybe that's not true. Maybe maybe when people get the things they want, they realize that they're kind of empty. But I... Yeah. <laughs> I think if... I don't know. I, I love the validation. I love being at Princeton. I love the big institutional validation of like, hey, you are smart. You matter. And I loved working at Second City, like the big institutional validation of like, you are funny. I remember telling a therapist, I was just like, I just want to be seen as smart, funny and kind. And he was like, you are. And I was like, well, shut up. I don't believe that yet. And now <laughs> I think I do. Now I think I do believe it. And like, oh, I am funny. Like, I, I can doubt it forever. But once you talk to like four different people, I... Yeah. A word I haven't really used yet is doubt. Like I, I, I'm a doubtful person, love doubting, 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 doubting my salvation as a child, doubting how things, how people feel about me, doubting achievements or what my life might look like. Doubt, doubt, doubt. I have such doubts. If the belief that you are smart and, and funny and kind needs to come from credits that that you accumulate it's probably not going to stick around because there's those are going to expire the applause will fade and the the you know the publications will will come and go so how are you going to you're going to believe it when it's you saying it so how how do you make sure that it's you saying it and that you trust and believe that person to be no, you're, mm, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, I, you know, you're right. <laughs> I mean, I think, I'm dumb, I'm not funny, and I'm mean, but, you know. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, I I feel lucky that I haven't gotten things I wanted for a while. And so I had to build up my own ego and self-esteem on my own. Sort of, I, I look like, I'm not, I didn't get hired as an SNL writer at 23. I, I've been sort of scrambling at this craft for over a decade and probably been made funnier about it. And I'm more mentally prepared for any tiny little achievement that may come my way. If a show goes poorly, I, what will I say? It, it helps to have like a lot of things happening so that there's some little buzz but no, you're right. I probably should do like a month long meditation retreat and like 
rub my own back and um <laughs> if that works for you yeah <laughs> or just do mantras like i'm smart funny and kind i'm smart funny and kind well i know one professional baseball player in the world i've only ever known one of them and it's this guy sean doolittle is a relief pitcher and when he got into baseball he said if i could just make it to the major leagues mm. nobody in the major leagues would be depressed and so you know then he made it to the major leagues if i could just you know, make it to the all-star game. Nobody in the all-star game it would be depressed. They're an all-star makes it still depressed. If I could just win the world series, surely nobody who's who pitches in the world series for a winning team could be depressed. Wins the world series, still depressed. And he said, maybe it's not the achievements. <laughs> you know, if you win the world series and it's still not there, maybe that's not the way you get to it. They say the saddest day of your life is the day after you win an Oscar. So <laughs> yes. you realize like, Oh, that was it. That was I, it. it. Yeah. It's wise. And I've been trying with like, I've been trying to disconnect my, sense of self from the things I do. It's harder with an artistic pursuit, no shade to baseball. I feel like when you put so much of yourself in the piece of art, it's tied to you more closely and how well that thing does or how people interact with that feels like a judgment on you. But it can't be. I, I've been asking nervously. I mean, you wrote a book and it's kind of a scary thing to put out there. And they're like, you just have to surrender it. It's a, it's a separate thing from you once you release it and people are judging it and analyzing it. Don't read Goodreads. I don't know why I've been looking at Goodreads, mm. but someone, someone got an advanced copy and their final act of, of 2022 on December 31st was to just <laughs> un, annihilate me. Megan, if oh, you're listening, no. Why, why'd you call me boring, unfunny? Uh, it was so mean of you, Megan. I looked at what Megan else she had written or she'd written reviews. They were all like rom-com, like ro oh, romance Megan. novels. I was like, my book wasn't for you. Please don't read my book. Don't review my book. Go out to a party, Megan. It's New Go Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> Go to Times Square. Yes. But you're, you are wise to make sure I'm not seeking the yeah achievements aren't going to solve um sort of this resting melancholy and and malaise is the melancholy and malaise managed right now i think so it's definitely um it'll surprise you in fun ways it's manageable but I, i'd still love a a miracle cure i'd love a little pill i'd love a little i'd love a little thing that just raises your mood a hundred percent of the time. But oh, there's a poem that I found in the pandemic about suffering and joy. Khalil Gibran, I think it just says suffering carves space for joy. I'm just paraphrasing. And that idea struck me. Cause I was like, Oh, life's not just going to be happy, 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 happy. That's an impossible ideal. It's actually the suffering that, makes room for you to have joy. It's, it's the bad day that makes the good day feel better. It's the, the shitty show that makes killing amazing. It's going through an awful life, not an awful life, going through tough things as a child and finding some kind of meaning in them and sharing them with other people. Like 
there's an, a balance and an interplay between suffering and joy that I've found. Somewhat unrelated. Uh, pivot. Pivot. Just because I'm wondering, what is it about your mom that you keep <laughs> going back to with your comedy? Why is she such a rich source for you? Either as a comedy or just as inspiration for your creativity? It's a good question. She's... I think in a lot of ways I'm trying to make sense of her. And maybe we're the same person in some ways. She can talk to anybody at a table. She's a performer and a showboat herself. She tells me stories about sort of getting tips from her tables or flirting with or playfully flirting with people. Like I very much feel a kinship with her and, and a compassion. I guess it started from a place of trying to make sense of my life or what's unique about me. You move to New York, you're in these comedy circles with other like liberal educated kids whose parents are lawyers or have these like white collar jobs. And then it's like, my mom's a server. That, that, oh, that's kind of like unique and interesting. And they told me I was going to hell for a long time. Isn't that weird? And then so the audience is this little focus group of helping you realize what's unique and different and strange about your life. And so some of it probably started as some kind of like mild therapy, like I'm over this. I got I, these weird things happen, but I'm I'm OK. Laugh with me. Haha, <laughs> Please laugh with me. And now what kind of sucks is I thought <laughs> I thought sort of this conservative Christian evangelical thinking was like a thing in my past that I'd gotten over and then sort of the past couple years occur and you're like, oh no, this is like in the bedrock of the U S and this is like a bigger problem for lots of people. And so I think like if I can figure out how to interrelate to them, maybe that's valuable to other people or I don't know. She's, I, she's my mom and I still want, I want things from her. She can't give me. And I, so I come, I don't know, I come back to her because she probably weighs on my mind and she texts me a lot. So she's like <laughs> part of my life. But I do love, I wish I could write something about like technology or make jokes about my cell phone. But it sort of all comes back to like parent child stuff. Yeah, I don't want to be complaining about my parents for my whole career, but. It doesn't come off as complaining though in, in your comedy. It, it, there's so much love in it. That's what makes it that's what makes it so inspiring is you, you hear about someone, someone who's, you know, got this completely different set of uh, worldview than, than you have and lives in this different world than you do. But there's so much love that you have in it that, and, and the love goes back and forth. You can, you can read that as, as very bright subtext. And, and I think that works really well. I hope I sometimes get jealous of people that made cleaner breaks sort of, their parents kicked them out at 18 or, or maybe I should be like, if you can't love all parts of me, fuck you, mom and dad, you accept me for all of who I am. But instead that's, there's this, this weird middle of negotiating and <laughs> figuring. the new trick. The new trick is new experiences. That's my thing. I, we went home at Thanksgiving one year. We did karaoke as a family 
fantastic. If everybody, oh, instead of mining the past and trying to get the apology you're never going to get for how you were raised, just go off and have a new experience with your family where you're all singing scripted lyrics. The, the dialogue is set and you're all just singing and cutting up. And then maybe that's the, the solution. What song did you do? <laughs> I, I have a, I, I, oh, I, first I did All Too Well, Taylor Swift, 10-minute mm-hmm. version. And then I, I, I love singing um, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning, which is maybe wrong of me, but uh, I think it's just funny when you're all enjoying karaoke to sing a country song written about 9-11. <laughs> and so it may be, <laughs> but it all... <laughs> The lyrics are quite telling too about how we've changed. Because the yeah, t- what's his name? He sings. Uh, I'm not a political man. I watch CNN, but I can't tell you the difference between Iraq and Iran. And I'm like, oh wow, there was a country person singing about watching CNN. Like the, how <laughs> much, how much the world has changed since. Right, uh, right. I think it was Toby Keith wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> Zach Zimmerman, thank you so much. John Mo, thanks so much for talking to me. That song was actually by Alan Jackson, not Toby Keith, but Zach's point remains. Zach Zimmerman's book, Is It Hot in Here or Am I Suffering for All Eternity for the Sins I Committed on Earth, is now available for pre-order. Last week's show was an interview with comedian Neil Brennan, and Neil talked about his experiences with a variety of substances to treat his depression, including 5-MeO-DMT. That's a psychedelic that was pretty disastrous for Neil, but that's gaining in popularity. And we got some interesting feedback on that episode that I'd like to share. Gabriel emails, I just finished the episode with Neil Brennan, and as always, it was a great listen. Thanks for putting it out there. I wanted to mention that 5-MeO can come from the Bufo alvarius toad, as was discussed on the show, but it can also be created in a lab. The reason this is important is that the Sonoran toad's population is declining as they are milked for their venom. In short, as 5-MeO-DMT is gaining popularity, it's harming the toads, and there is a much more humane alternative. I felt that this is important for your listeners to know. That is good to know, Gabriel. Thank you. Show before that was an interview with Casey Davis about, among other things, keeping up with care tasks around the house when you're not feeling great mentally. We heard from Hannah on Instagram, really loved this episode, however, slightly disappointed in the portrayal of occupational therapists. There absolutely is training for looking at somebody's function. We don't just look at people with broken legs. We're dual trained to help those with physical or mental health issues. And what Casey discussed is what we do as part of our daily practice in mental health occupational therapy. On the next Depression Mode, Rachel is a best-selling writer and artist, and she uses the tools available to her with some ambivalence. I don't know if this sounds bad, but I'll reach into like that barrel of experiences which were not so good and be like, how did you feel in those moments? And how can I translate this into dialogue that feels realistic and relatable for people? I'm still reconciling with this because I hate the idea of like, oh, artists need to feel pain because I'm like, I think that they don't though. Like, I think maybe I'm like, if I didn't have trauma, wouldn't I be like so much better? Because <laughs> I wouldn't be like having my lunchtime cry kind of thing. <laughs>
Rachel Smythe, creator of the Lore Olympus comic series, joins us. We love to hear from you. Our email is depreshmode at maximumfun.org. Our Instagram is depreshpod. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Instagram at John Moe, too. And that one is just mostly a lot of pictures of my dogs. Remember, sleeping with celebrities, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If people support our show, we can keep making Depression Mode. If they stop supporting it, then we can't. Then we have to stop. We don't want to stop. We think the show is helping people. If you have already donated to the show, thank you. You are helping people. If you have not yet donated, it's easy to do. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Find a level that works for you and select Depression Mode. Be sure to hit subscribe. Give us five stars. Write rave, glowing, gushing reviews. That helps get the show out to more people whom it can help. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available 24-7 for free in the United States simply by calling 988. Remember, 988. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741741. Hi, Credits listeners. You are now more concerned about toad populations than you were before this episode, and I bet you didn't expect that to happen today. Depression Mode is made possible by your contributions. The show is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson, and we get booking help from Merritt Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings Hi, I'm Radha. You're doing a good job, and we're going to be okay. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.